Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. I own it, I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free. everyone and welcome to the Bubble Hour where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm Jean McCarthy, recovery author, blogger, and podcast host. I've been chronicling my adventures in life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety over nine years ago in my blog Unpickled and in books like the Unpickled Holiday Survival Guide, which I encourage you to get a copy of this book at this time of year, and my poetry collection, The Ember Ever There. So I tell my stories there, and I hold space for your stories here. And today, I'm holding space for Julie Dereshinsky, who joins me to share her story and talk about recovery after spending some time in gray area drinking. Julie, welcome to the Bubble Hour. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Jean. It's so nice to be here. Now, we've been corresponding for a while, so you have how much time of alcohol-free living at this point? Oh, gosh, since May of 2018. So I guess we're coming up on two and a half years. Oh, and how does it feel? Is it feeling pretty good? It feels great. It does. Yeah, it's a good life, isn't it? It sure is. Well, I'm going to turn it over to you now, Julie. So tell us about yourself and tell us your story. Okay. Thank you, Jean. Um, So as Jean said, my name is Julie. I'm in my mid-40s, and I live in Massachusetts, right outside of Boston. Um, I was born and raised in the area, and now I live in a beautiful, bucolic town with my husband and my two kiddos, who are four and six right now. I myself am the youngest of four kids, and I grew up in a two-parent household in a middle-class town. And as I just mentioned, I broke up with my love affair with wine in May of 2018. From a really, really young age, probably as far back as I can remember, so maybe I was five-ish, I was a really sensitive kid. I recall being, you know, in the back seat of my mom's car with my mom and my older brother in the car. And my brother asked the question, what part of your body can feel the most pain? And, you know, it was a innocuous question. And I said, without skipping a beat, duh, your feelings. <laughs> and they started laughing and laughing. And I couldn't, I, I, just, I never understood why that was funny because it was just so second nature to me. Like your feelings, of course, those are going to hurt the most. And my mom shared that story over and over and over. I guess what I'm saying is I always, I am and I always have been an empath. And if there's any Myers-Briggs geeks out there, ESFJ for those of you. I also suffered from debilitating migraines as a kid. At the time, so maybe about once every two weeks or once a month or so, I'd get a really, really bad 
headache, nausea, the whole thing. And at the time I was told as you know, were others in my family that headaches were hereditary and it was just in the gene pool. My mom got them, my aunts got them. It really probably wasn't until, I don't know, the last decade or so um, and that I'm informed enough to know that it's anxiety that's hereditary and, and that showed up in the form of migraines. So, so growing up, alcohol was pervasive in my life. I'll gloss over a fair amount of that out of respect for my family members' privacy But let's just say there was a lot of overt drinking, a lot of secret drinking, and a whole lot of in between. And for me, an unhealthy dose of codependence on top of all of that. And so because of my high sensitivity and coupled that with, you know, strong emotional intelligence, I could walk into a room and, you know, see a whole bunch of people's backs and know who had been drinking. I was, I was that good at being hyper vigilant and and scanning a room. And I think this all comes down to that feeling and need for safety and security. I remember my sister once saying, but how can you possibly know said person has been drinking? And I remember saying, how can you possibly not? Or I could be driving up the hill to my house, the house that I grew up in. And depending on which lights were on in the house, I'd know if we were in good shape or not. So soft lighting, the low lighting, yes, everything is copacetic. Nothing but an overhead light on in the kitchen. Like, uh oh, what what am I walking into? Which actually explains quite a bit about my, my peculiar lighting needs to this day in my own home. <laughs> so, um, very hyper vigilant, anxious, inwardly anxious. I don't think anybody that I knew would call me an anxious kid. And at the same time, a caretaker, so an empath and somebody who really feels safe when others around her are okay. And this was and continues to be a big theme for me. For anyone out there who's read Codependent No More, you'll know that controlling other people's wellness plays a big role in our lives to our detriment. You know, I honestly feel like back then there were things I could do, like staying in on a Saturday night in high school to force family fun time that could kind of control the dynamic at play or the dysfunction. And of course, my parents didn't want that. They wanted to get on with their stuff. Nothing I said or did was going to change, you know, anything going on. But needless to say, I thought that they needed it. And it turns out it was just me that needed it. So there was never any violence or abuse or anything like that. Um, In fact, on the outside, in many ways, we looked like a leave it to beaver family. But we did all the things, you know, vacations. My mom stayed home for the most part. My dad worked. We had a big fun neighborhood and social network. But there was always tension. And it was always, it always had to do with someone's drinking whoever was the most problematic at that time. And I recall somebody saying recently, in the last couple of years actually, that when there's addiction in the house, that's where, that's the most important relationship. And it's really true. It's like this third person or this other family that's just sitting there, kind of like a cloud. And that really, really resonated with me. And of course, there were huge cracks and fault lines in this facade. It was ingrained in me at a really young age that keeping secrets is okay. You know, no need to broadcast stuff. What happens in this house is no one else's business. That's just kind of the way it was. And, you know, things just always, well, things were happy. And like I said, I had a very fun, enjoyable childhood in many ways. 
things always felt like they were at a slow boil. Something or someone was always dysfunctional. So looking back, I feel like all I did was navigate that, shape shift, and and try to kind of survive and thrive. I don't want to say survive and, and make it seem like it was terrible, but again, just navigating it, thriving, and pretending everything was A-OK was pretty much pretty much my my charter. I was an outgoing kid, so a shape and a shapeshifter as I just said. I fit in everywhere I went. I had lots of friends. I wasn't an A student, but I wasn't terrible either. I would say a solid C, B minus or C plus student, but I made up for it socially and interpersonally. I was also a late bloomer, so I wasn't tied up with boys too much in high school. I probably sipped first sipped alcohol at a really young age. I probably, actually, I know that I, you know, snuck a sip of my mom's glass of white wine at dinner time when she was, you know, when her back was turned and it was disgusting. Well, I couldn't, I couldn't even fathom why anybody would drink that garbage. And because there were a lot of dark episodes and a lot of arguing around drinking in my house, I was aware that it should be controlled for the most part. And important to note, that's not because anyone ever told me about our family history. And it was always said and implied that the men in the family are the ones with the problems. But alcohol started becoming commonplace, you know, on weekend nights at friends' houses in high school, pretty much around anything social, bonfires, football games, things like that. Um, I never craved it. If I ran out of any, you know, if we ran out of it, it wasn't a big deal. If it wasn't available, it wasn't a big deal. It made things more fun, right? A little bit more shiny, a little bit looser. And, you know, myself and, and my, uh, my peers were all pretty safe. We had a designated driver when there was drinking involved. And so at that time, again, I compartmentalized my drinking, but it wasn't, you know, from, from the family history, but it, and it wasn't an issue. So fast forward to college. I went away freshman year. And I went away to a huge school. I lived there. And I didn't really drink that much then. Um, but I also didn't do well academically. And part of it was that in spite of my outgoing nature, I, j- I wasn't well prepared to thrive in an academic setting that was so huge. You know, I never, I never took the time to think about what the best school for me was. Another big thing for me here is not stopping to ask myself, do I want to do this? Is this right for me. Like I had no experience or mentorship around kind of knowing and flexing that mental muscle, which is so important. It was so important then and it is so important now as I navigate, you know, adulthood and middle age. And candidly, I went there because my sister went there and it made things more convenient for my parents. <laughs> um, so my grades were terrible and I had to take a semester off. And I'm not blaming my parents in any way here, but there was a large part of me that spent that entire year worrying about what was going on at home. That codependence again, rearing its ugly head everywhere I go. And I also had a lot of guilt since I was the youngest. Even though my brothers lived at home, I felt bad for my mom that her youngest was out of the house. I'm the youngest of four. I felt more for her in sadness than I did for me in excitement, which, as I say it out loud, seems insane. So clearly, I was doomed from the start. So now I'm home, back in my parents' house, while all of my friends are heading back to their respective colleges. And that was really shameful for me, and it still is to some extent these days. 
I did end up getting a job working at a high-tech public relations agency where I was able to bang through the rest of my undergraduate education. So I did graduate with a Bachelor of Science in Communications from an excellent business school closer to home just a short while after my peer group. Throughout my 20s, alcohol did not play a huge role consistently. It's around this time that I discovered wine, at first red and then white. That's pretty much all I drank when I drank. Somebody I was in a relationship with at the time said to me when I ordered a soda or sparkling soda at a nice restaurant, he said, you know, you really do, you really need to learn how to drink wine. It's, it's, you know, you need to, you need to be more sophisticated. If you're going to have a steak, you need to learn how to order a nice glass of red wine. So I guess I did. (laughs) Um, But at that point, uh, it was more about going out to dinner and having wine or being in a bar and having wine than needing it on the regular. And I was proud of that because I held so much resentment to my parents. You know, but now that I look back, there were warning signs. I always wanted a drink before ordering dinner, sitting down at a restaurant. Like, why rush it? Let's just like, I don't need the menu yet. I want to sit here. I want to have a glass of wine and chat with my girlfriends. What's the rush? Similarly, and I've heard this from a lot of other listeners, I'd get really irritated if my glass was empty and there wasn't a waiter in sight. Like, what the heck, guys? I'm sitting here. I've got nothing in front of me. Let's hop to it. And, and here's the thing. No one in my family talked about addiction or alcoholism. Those, those, I look back now in hindsight and see them as warning signs, but at the time, I didn't give it a second thought. I knew alcoholism ran in my family. But again, it was more like the men, the dads and the grandpas, and the women would get pissed at them for drinking all the time. And, you know, now too, I wonder, you know, was it just the men by berating all of the lower bottom alcoholics um, or problem drinkers? Are we glossing over the gray area? Was it more pervasive than I thought? I, you know, I feel like there's a whole population of people simmering on this brink, which I think is what brought me here. So it's that, that sort of gray area of drinking that I started to fall into, which is, you know, am I, or am I not? Is this a problem or is it okay? Because everybody's doing it. So somewhere in there, as I crept up towards 30, I really got into a groove of drinking almost daily, but never alone. So that's okay, right? (laughs) I remember saying that I never drank alone and I never drank when I was sad or to escape. I remember having this conversation a couple of times with people who did and thinking, you've got a problem. Like that's, that's when you know you've got a problem, or at least that's what I was thinking in my head. I had work trips all the time. I traveled internationally. I spent a lot of time in New York City and on the West Coast, and I was constantly going to cocktail hours, having drinks with clients, really shiny and fancy stuff. When I wasn't traveling, I was meeting with girlfriends for drinks and having brunch on the weekends and Sunday fun days and all that stuff. And I can consciously remember certain points where four or five days went by without having a couple of glasses of wine at night. I would notice and be conscious of that. I recall somebody saying once, oh, I, I really, I need a detox break. I've literally been drinking almost every night this holiday season. And I remember thinking, huh, I have two, but not just during the holidays. Is this, is that wrong? Should we not be doing that? (laughs) And this is the gray area. So when I started dating my now husband, we went out all the time and wine was a heavy part of our courtship. So at this point, I'm in my, you know, early thirties, approaching mid thirties. And when I say wine was a heavy part of our courtship, that was more about me and meaning I needed it. I felt like I needed it to feel like who I wanted to be. 
like a better version of myself, a little bit buzzed. And he wasn't and is still not a dr- much of a drinker at all. He can have a few beers and then nothing again for weeks, like we call a normie. Um, and I never got that. That just seems crazy to me. But that is him. So we got married, had a fabulous wedding up in Vermont with all of our close friends and family. It was really, really amazing. We came home, settled into our new house in the suburbs that we live in now, the home that we had just closed on weeks before the wedding. A month later, I was pregnant. I had no problem giving up wine during my pregnancy. Easy. I may have had one ship of sip of champagne on New Year's Eve, but that was it. And I didn't even want that. And even after my son, who is six, was born, I was breastfeeding. So that really regulated how much I could drink and when. I never breastfed after drinking. I did Google plenty of things around that, though. Like, you know, those results of, well, sure, if you can drive a car, you can breastfeed, which is kind of insane to me. You know, I wanted to make sure enough time had gone by, you know, is eight hours after having a glass of wine okay? And then I got pregnant again shortly after he turned one. And again, I had no issues giving up wine. By that point, in between pregnancies, you know, and by that point, it was becoming a little bit more constant. So after my daughter was born, another easy and healthy pregnancy and delivery, I got into a groove. Back then, our kids went to bed so early. So we'd feed our two-year-old real dinner, and I'd nurse my my daughter at around 6.30 p.m. before putting her down. And then I'd come downstairs and start cooking our grown-up dinner while my husband gave our son a bath and played and et cetera, et cetera. And I'd be a part of that too. But for the most part, at that point, I was getting dinner on. And I loved this routine because I could be drinking a glass of cold Sauvignon Blanc while I sauteed some delicious culinary creation and caught up on work emails, you know, that came in in the last hour or two. My husband and I are also both um, working parents, I should mention. Except during that dinner preparation, it usually wasn't one glass. It was usually two. And then we'd sit down to eat, and I'd want another. And then eventually, over time, I'd want one after, when we were nestled in on the couch. So right there, it's only 8.30 or 9 o'clock, and we're at a bottle of wine. And every day looked like that. Like every single day. I got to the point where I couldn't imagine cooking without having a a glass of wine next to me. It, it, It just didn't go. Or watching TV without wine. I couldn't and wouldn't want to. It was, you know, Netflix on the couch with a glass of wine. And not getting messy and and not even getting drunk or inebriated. I mean, I guess just a warm buzz, a warm glow to make the day, make the night a little brighter, to reward myself, you know, under the guise of self-care. And, you know, in hindsight, it's the worst self-care I could have given to myself. And so there, there was also the dilemma of procuring the wine. You know, my husband and I, as I said, we both worked. Um, so many times I'd be the one to go pick up the kids from their daycare or preschool after all of my meetings ended around five-ish. Typically, I'd swing by the wine store and pick up some before getting them. And yes, I felt very weird about having wine in my front seat while getting them. <laughs> and, you know, I, I think I actually, I know that you know, I was a little bit covert about that when I would come in the house because if I was my husband, I'd be saying like, wait, didn't you just stop at the wine store last night? Why did you have to go again tonight? Like he wasn't even tuned in enough to know that what I got yesterday was gone because with some healthy pours, four glasses is a bottle. 
So that got irritating just to think about and constantly be wondering, sitting at the red light on the way to pick up my kids thinking, should I take a right or should I take a left? You know, and if I didn't have wine, it was conscious and I missed it. Later in the evening, I felt a boredom, like something was missing. But the next day, I felt glorious. Again, it was all in control. You know, I wasn't getting wasted or passing out. I was just going to bed with a nice, easy glow. And it just, it also, quite frankly, made getting through bedtime with a almost one and almost three-year-old a little bit easier. Easier. So fast forward to the next year or so, my daughter is no longer nursing and they were at a stage where we really should be all eating together as a family, or at least in my mind, I thought, okay, now's the time. Our schedules allowed it. My daughter was on solid foods. They were staying up a little bit later. And I had a rule. I had a bunch of rules, actually. I had a rule that I would never drink before they went to bed. It was this hard and fast rule I had that made what I was doing okay. And I mostly kept to it. But eventually, I would say in that last six months or so, I would have a glass of wine around seven o'clock while my son was watching a show before bed. And I would consciously know that I was breaking a rule, but I would have a million reasons why it was fine. Like the only reason why I had this rule was because of, you know, my upbringing and the drinking around that. Like plenty of people have a glass of wine while their kids are still up. But I'd never bring it over to sit on the couch with him or play with him. I was hiding it. I was busying myself in the kitchen, but also making sure everything was operating, you know, A-OK on the home front. And I I understand that most people, well, some people think this is crazy um, because it is perfectly normal to have a glass of wine at night and for your kids to see it. In my standpoint, because of my upbringing and, and, and just because of all the secrecy and hiding and shame associated with, with, with alcohol and what I saw as a kid, it was very important for my children to not see me drinking unless it was you know a holiday, a social thing, a party, people were over. So this was a big red flag when my son, my son was up watching a show, he got up to come into the kitchen and I kind of moved my wine glass behind a coffee maker. And this, this was a moment for me, but I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. So it really felt like my me time was shrinking and, and definitely for years now. So this is, we're in 20, I guess, 17 ish. Now I had that like, ugh feeling the next morning. Like I was just blue on the inside. I couldn't pinpoint why, you know, I I was always at a deficit, you know, hydration deficit, whatever you want to call it. I always felt like I was waking up at a deficit and I had a million other things to to blame it on. But around three or four o'clock in the afternoon, after hydrating well all day, exercising, eating well, you know, when six or seven o'clock rolled around, I think, okay, cool. I feel great. Fine to have a glass or two of wine tonight. And then it was like, wash, rinse, repeat every day. Same thing. And I remember saying to my husband, maybe two years before I quit, that I felt like I should cut back or stop. I think I actually said stop because I knew back then even that cutting back wasn't a great option. And his response was, really? I don't feel like you drink that much. Well, not more than anybody else. But hey, if you want to stop, if, you, if it's not working for you, I totally support you. You know, what do you need from me? So something equal parts surprised and equal parts totally supportive because he's pretty much the best guy in the world. 
That lasted about a week or so because something inevitably happened to irritate me and I felt justified not to stop. I remember thinking that Mother's Day that, or in advance of Mother's Day, this is the day I'll stop. What a great gift to give to my children. But it was on a Sunday and we went out to brunch and couldn't stop that day. So great. I'll stop the next day. Except pickup that night at daycare with the kids was a nightmare of epic proportion. No can do. Let's pick another day and so on and so on and so on. And again, I heard, I heard somebody say early on, and it was probably on one of these podcasts, Jean, that the amount of time she spent thinking about getting wine, drinking the wine, and then regretting the wine the next day was insanity. And that really struck with me. People with, without a drinking problem don't play these mental gymnastics. And people without a problem do not look at other people leaving a glass, half glass of wine on the table and think they're insane. It's ridiculous now to, be th- to me to think back um, of myself, you know, thinking about wine while I'm reading The Hungry Caterpillar to my two-year-old, right? So it was around this time that I really started diving into Google. And it was also around this time I found a bunch of resources that talked a lot about gray area drinking. So this was kind of like my sober, curious, extended play. I stopped a couple of times for several weeks at a time and felt amazing. My skin looked better. I felt better. It was, you know, these, these bouts of three weeks, four weeks were the longest I had gone. And I felt, I felt really good. And then I thought, okay, yeah, I've proved I can do this. So I'm just gonna, just gonna do this moderation thing. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. And then in April, 2018, actually on my parents' 50th wedding anniversary, my dad passed away in his sleep. It was really, really sudden. And it rocked me. Nobody saw it coming. He was in his late 70s, but there was, there was, there was no illness. And we didn't have a super close relationship as far as dads and daughters go, but close enough. You know, we were close. And I lost a parent. And, you know, we were woken up in the middle of the night with the news. I had kids and, you know, so this wasn't just my dad, it was their papa. And now my mom was going to be all alone. And that last bit about my mom being alone, this is what gave me more anxiety than anything else. It's like all of my codependents came crashing down on me like an avalanche. I went through, you know, the next few days and week in a daze, you know, going through all the motions that come with grief, you know, and at that time, after someone passes away, lots of friends and family come and, you know, for days on end, spend time at my mom's house. And wine was a constant. Um, there was, somebody was always making sure there was plenty of wine to drink. So probably about four weeks later, I was sort of easing back and falling back into my, my boring Groundhog Day routine. It was a Monday night in May. Um, I'd only had one glass of wine, and I can't recall if that's because that's all I had. I think it's because it's all I had. And something just clicked. I, I didn't even really want it. And I'm not a religious person at all, but I am a believer in the power of the universe and, and you know that the universe speaks to us when we're ready to listen. And for whatever reason, this was, this was a, a moment. This was my moment. And it wasn't a question of, should I take some time off? Should I drink less? It was just, I'm done. I felt confident enough to say, nope, nope, I'm never drinking again. And I know that that I'm making it sound easier than it was. It certainly was not easy. 
but it felt right to me to say never. And, you know, I'm aware enough to know how this works and that addiction is progressive. So even if nothing was happening on the outside at that point, I know that our bodies need more and more. So what would the next 20, 30, 10, 20, 30 years look like? Like, I can't be doing this every night into my 50s and 60s. And like, what will that do to the relationship with my family? And I think I... I, in fact, I know I always felt like a very sophisticated drinker with no consequences, nobody ever calling me out on it, nothing bad ever happened, no bottom, no low bottom. And that always separated me from everybody else I knew who were addicted to something. But I am a very all or nothing person and that's what works for me. So that's what I did. I actually think my quitting was born out of, my initial quitting was born out of my need to not have this ever be a thing for my children because it was such a big thing for me growing up. But it really turned, it morphed away from that. I mean, that is still a huge, huge piece of this. Um, But it really became more about me and the gift to myself. And so within a week or less, I found the bubble hour and I was immediately hooked I went all in. I binge listened to every single story. For me, when we talk about like our toolboxes and what works, the nodding heads and the me too, like, oh my God, yes, you do that too, has always had huge resonance for me. You know, leaving a glass of wine half full on the table, you know, running your tap water while you're filling your glass of wine so that the glug, 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 you know, (laughs) isn't picked up on rereading parts of books or having to rewatch a show, rephrasing things to our significant others. Like, I know we talked about this recently, but because there were times when, you know, they would say, we literally just talked about this last night and I wouldn't remember. And it didn't take a lot of wine for me not to remember. I mean, it could be two glasses of wine. So from that point forward, I became best friends with my toolkit, which includes connecting with other women, serving others, being in service to others, exercise, pampering myself in the way of skincare, which has become a somewhat of a, of an obsession for me. Reading has become another obsession. I've always been a huge reader, but now I, yeah, it's, it's almost becoming a problem how much I want to read these days. (laughs) And I think about the vision of my future self, who I want for myself in my future. And that just really, really keeps me grounded. So in the last 2.5 years, since I, like I said, goodbye to wine, you know, instead of sitting on the sidelines and keeping things in my life kind of small and safe, which is what I've always done and I've sort of been brought up to do. I've kind of discovered this, I've, I've discovered more of myself. And in that I'm, I'm much more motivated. I'm driven. I'm unapologetic about everything. I, I remember when I turned 40, my friend saying, oh, this is going to be your best decade yet. I love my forties. And I remember thinking, oh, how could that be? I'm like at that, I'm at that, that, you know, stage of life where I'm not that relevant to anything or anyone except for my children. And wouldn't you know it, it's, it has been the best decade of my life. You know, in the last couple of years, I'm now a certified professional coactive coach. I'm working with women in recovery or women are, who are sober curious, um, particularly in this time of, of, uh, the pandemic and, and post-pandemic. 
in the, I'm in the process of obtaining my She Recovers coaching designation. I'm speaking on panels. I'm writing for Scary Mommy and Ariana Huffington's Thrive community. I really feel like this is my calling, you know, helping, helping other women really just, it feeds my soul. And I absolutely love that my kid, my kids get to see this um, and learn from me. And, you know, we can have an open dialogue, an honest dialogue about the spectrum of addiction out in the open. And I'm not saying all of this is happening because I stopped drinking wine. I just don't think I would have had the motivation or done the deep personal work on myself so feverish, feverishly with wine still, you know, joining me on the couch each night, if that makes sense. And even now my kids will say, more so my son who's six, um, you know, we talk about candy or sugar or, or certain things. And I use the word addiction and, and I, I talk about it scientifically or as scientific as one can get with a six-year-old because I want it to be part of my family's vocabulary. And I want them to understand that the leaves of our family tree are soaked in alcoholism and it's real. And and gr- there's a spectrum. So you don't have to be getting a DUI or vomiting or getting awful hangovers or ruining relationships for it to be a problem. If it's, if it's, if it's a problem to you, it's a problem. Even if that means you're only having one drink a night, it's you're your own measurement of that spectrum. So that's my story, Jean. That's it in a nutshell. Well, thank you for sharing. Let's talk about the spectrum. I think your childhood experiences allowed you to recognize that you had entered the spectrum. You didn't want to go there, not for yourself, not for your children. I wonder about the role of your sensitivity in that as well, because when we're sensitive, you know, we're sensitive to what's going on around us, but when something's hurting us, it really hurts us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you mentioned that quitting wasn't easy for you, even though you weren't in late stage alcoholism, possibly maybe not even physically dependent on alcohol. What was hard? Talk about that and how you worked through that. So what was hardest for me, I would say, it was twofold. One um, is the night, it wasn't the big moments, uh, you know, getting through a holiday, not drinking or my birthday or a vacation. I had a badge of honor around that. Like, look, I can do these things. These are the firsts and I'm doing them. I would say it was the smaller moments like the dinner prep or the, you know, having people over the house to watch a football game on the Sunday the little moments like that, um, I would say, were probably the hardest for me. And then also, because I am a pleaser and somewhat of a shapeshifter and I care what others think, it was very hard for me to do social stuff too and explain my story. That I got really hung up on that. And so how did you, did you develop some... I don't know, stock phrases that worked for you? Or did you just not try to explain it? How did you get through those sticky moments? Yeah. So the first few folks I told, obviously the the people that are kind of nearest and dearest to me, I remember saying, 
so I'm not drinking. And I always started off with, I'm not pregnant <laughs> because at my age or, you know, a couple of years ago, people would assume that. Um, and I would just say right off the bat, nothing happened. No big stories. I'm fine. I just decided it wasn't right for me. And what was hard about it is people don't understand. People were looking, there's got to be something more. There's got to be something more. And so I felt myself over explaining. um, And I didn't like that. Oh God. I totally know what you mean. Right? It's like we have to justify this choice. And yet there may not be a big story or a big moment or, I mean, the person you're talking to might drink more than you did and you don't want them to feel like you're passing judgment on them. And then we're codependent. So we exactly. Like yes. <laughs> Plus we've been hiding it for so long and then we, it feels good to talk about it. So I found if someone showed a little bit of interest, I would overshare. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. And, and you know, I've got a four and a six-year-old. Like, I am in the midst of mommy wine culture. It's there. And I, again, because because I care about others, I don't want other folks to think that I'm judging them. I also want to make sure, like, new friends that I'm making know I'm, I'm really normal and fun and cool. Don't worry about this thing that I don't drink. It won't even affect our relationship one bit. You can still have your drinks. You know, it's, it's, I've let go of a lot of that. I'm now two and a half years into it. I'm, I'm just me and it's gotten a lot easier. I find too that, you know, relationships run their course and there's lots of reasons why relationships change over time, especially as we age. And sometimes it's because somebody gets, I don't know, like super into running ultra marathons and they're just like out running six hours a day. They don't have the same amount of time. Or, um, you know, someone has a health crisis that causes them to have different priorities or not socialize as much. There's lots of reasons why relationships run their course over time. And, I feel like we sometimes want to hang on to them and tell our our social circles what you just said. No, no one else has to change mm-hmm. their pattern. I'm going to fit. I'm going to change the piece, the shape of my puzzle piece, and still fit in this puzzle yes. exactly the same. Yes. So it doesn't work, and yet we sort of want to. Mm, I almost got a sense of this as you talked, but I might just be because I feel this way. Is that I kind of want to be perfect, but also I don't want anyone to notice me. So I want, you know, like that means I want to avoid criticism. So then that doesn't work, you know, right? like things just have to change. And sometimes that means that some of those friendships will actually be better and deeper because a, a relationship, a friendship that's centered around being wine moms together can't really be a very deep friendship. It's kind of a lazy way to socialize. Absolutely. Well, you bring up a good point. I mean, for me, you know, uh, things that used to be in the beginning, I thought, well, things that used to be really fun aren't so fun anymore. And, and now I have the, the hindsight or the, the knowledge to know, like, they probably never were fun. I just used wine to make it more bearable. Um, so now I'm much more selective um, in terms of who I spend my time with. I'd much rather have a small community of really rich and deep relationships than a wide net of kind of surface relationships. And I remember on one of your recent podcasts, it might have even been you, um, someone said, you know, 
once that small talk, superficial stuff starts, like, no thanks, let's dig in. I want to know what makes you tick. I want to know, tell me about that relationship with your mother. That sounds downright intriguing. You know, I want to talk about deep, meaningful stuff. Um, and I think that's, that's part of that is my desire. I mean, you mentioned that, you know, perhaps I didn't want to be noticed. I would, I would say it might be the opposite where I want to be seen for who I am. And that, that contributed to my need to over-explain because I need to make sure when somebody walks away from this conversation, they really understand why I'm doing this and what it means to me. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I get that too. That's, I, I have both of those parts. Like, yeah, I don't want to be noticed, but I want to be heard, but I want to be I don't want to stand out, but I also, uh, it's just, a yes, yes. And it, it's that shape shifting, yes. um, adaptation that I think probably is ingrained in us. You mentioned you're the youngest. I mm-hmm. am. Too. And I feel like us youngest children, especially if we're all doorsteps, mm-hmm. uh, we tend to watch what everyone else is doing and then slide in. Right. Cause yes. we got to keep up. So we have to quickly assess, okay, what's going on here? What's the relationship with everyone? What's the temperature in this room? How do I fit in? How do I, you know, and I I can actually see I've got three grandsons and the youngest one is only a year and a half. And I can see him watching his older brothers and doing what they do. And it's just instinct for him, right? They're his teachers. And so it's almost like we imprint that we over imprint it and it becomes how we conduct ourselves and how we relate to others. So no wonder it's hard to decode that. (laughs) It's so exhausting. You're so right. And it's so exhausting. Yeah, it is. It's true. Something else you said um, makes me think of a documentary I watched this week on HBO. It's called Risky Drinking. Mm. It's from 2016. And there's a lot of footage of people drinking alcohol in it. So trigger warning, but there's also some good messages in it because it showed different people along different stages of the spectrum and had a really harrowing look at what late stage alcoholism looks like. And they also interviewed some experts. One of the experts said, I like to tell people that the trouble starts when you begin to see alcohol as your friend. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the red flag, and it doesn't matter how much you're drinking when that when that shift occurs in your relationship with alcohol. Once you start seeing it as a friend, you've entered into the zone. That makes a ton of sense. Mm-hmm. It took yeah, my breath so, away when she said yeah, that because that yeah. I remember that. And so when we're talking about why it's hard to quit, even when you aren't in late stage alcoholism. I believe part of it is grieving that relationship and the illusion of relationship. Did you feel that way? Yes, yes. And it's like it's it's like any bad or less than stellar relationship where you spend a lot of time. It's like that saboteur that sits on your shoulder saying, "Well, if you if you leave this relationship, who will you do X, Y, and Z with? Or what if there's all the what ifs and the anxiety about the future, which keeps us in the unhealthy relationship patterns. If you just focus, or if we all can just focus on what the relationship is, whether it's a person or a substance or something else and, and, and make decisions from that point, 
how much different how much different life could be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that internal chatter, we even have to ask, is this even true? Like, is this even me thinking this or is this my addictive voice just chirping? Yes. Yeah. Yes. The story we tell ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. And hang on to, right? Or or shelf for future use. Okay. I'll yes. give that thought for a bad day <laughs> yeah. when I need a reason, when I need an excuse. Yes. You mentioned that you love to read. Tell me some of your favorite books that you recommend to other people that are either thinking about changing their relationship with alcohol or who are in recovery. Oh, gosh. Um, so I would say one of the first ones I ever read was Caroline Knapp, Drinking a Love Story, I think it was. Mm-hmm. I love Laura McCowan, um, The Luckiest. We Are the Luckiest. I read that one recently um, because I read now on my iPad a lot at night with the lights out. I don't look at book covers anymore, so I very rarely can remember titles <laughs> or authors the way I used to when I would have, you know, physical books. Um, but I recall Codependent No More, um, This Naked Mind, Lit, a whole bunch of others. There is so many good books right now. We are so lucky. I know, I know. In this information age. And, and the other thing I'll say that's, that was so, uh, so surprising to me in a good way is um, like finding, finding the bubble hour and reading some of these books, going back to like my mom's generation and I, the tools and resources available to women that are out there now, thanks to technology and social media are abundant. And I think especially around all addiction, but, um, this, this high bottom gray area, high functioning, um, addiction, I think is, is so important for people to understand and to reflect on and think about, um, because we, so many folk, men and women, I think struggle with the one size fits all approach to healing or recovering. And there's so many different kinds of avenues and modalities for people who do want to, you know, put the glass down or put the bottle down um, that I just, I, I think it's amazing. Well, how can people find you and reach you, Julie, if they want to learn more about your work or send you a message? Sure. So they can find me at JWD Coaching. Dot com. That's my website. Or they can find me on Instagram at Julie underscore Dereshinsky, which is a long one, D-E-R-E-S-H-I-N-S-K-Y. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Jean. It was a, it was a pleasure being here and, uh, and, and having space to talk to you. Listeners, if you want to reach Julie, you can go to her website, that's jwdcoaching.com, and connect with her there. That's all for this week, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, take good care. I own it, I did that, not proud, but that was me, and when I face it, I take back a little dignity, not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power weakness had on me In a dark corner
Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.